So good evening, and I'd like to welcome you all uh, to IMS. My name is Guy Armstrong, and I want to introduce the other people who will be on the teaching team uh, this week. Just to my left is Carol Wilson. Carol lives here uh, in Barrie, so she's been here for the snowstorms and knows what you all have been through if you're local. And to her left is uh, Rodney Smith. Rodney lives in Seattle, and he knows what the rain is like. He's had some weather experience, too. And I'll just say that uh, it's really a pleasure for us to be here. We're old friends going back to about 30 years together. We worked on staff here in the late 70s. That's where we first knew each other. So it's a lot of fun. This is the one time of year when we get together and get to reconnect. So we're happy to be here. And on my right is Maddie Klein. And we're also really pleased to have Maddie with us. Maddie is the executive director of Cambridge Insight Meditation Center which is a very thriving uh, and busy urban center in Cambridge, just outside of Boston. And Maddie's come off a full work week and is joining us here for a little over half of our retreat. Uh, Maddie's currently in teacher training in a program that's jointly run between uh, IMS with Joseph and Carol and myself and Spirit Rock with Jack Cornfield. So she's going through about a four-year program to become a retreat teacher. She's very well practiced, has done quite a bit of teaching already, and she'll be assisting us uh, during this week together. So we're really happy to have her support too. I flew in yesterday from California, and I, I love to get a window seat when I'm on uh, these long flights because you watch the whole country sort of unfold outside the window. And it's amazing to sort of think back what the first settlers had to go through in order to cross this continent, you know, traveling across by train and when that ran out, getting in wagon carts. And if you know California, you probably know the Donner Party where they broke down in the snows and ended up uh, eating uh, the people who had not made it in order to get through. So compared to those, uh, the... The cross-country flights are kind of a lark. You do the whole thing in in five and a half hours now, and nobody got eaten along the way. (laughs) But still, you know, we kind of adjust our expectations to the modern uh, travel conditions. And because I tend to fly a lot in, uh, in teaching, accumulate a lot of miles, and then they occasionally give you these things called uh, free upgrade certificates which it turns out you never get to use because somebody else has gotten in ahead of you and have more miles or whatever. So yesterday I'd applied for a free upgrade from economy to first class. I had a bunch of certificates that were expiring March 31st. I thought, oh, well, I'll try to use them. And I went through the check-in and found out that uh, only, there was only one seat available and there were 18 people ahead of me. So I wasn't able to use it and I was stuck in economy and I got on the plane and immediately started talking with the guy who was sitting uh, on the aisle in my row and started complaining about how I can never get to use these free upgrades that they give us. And I imagine a lot of other people are in that situation. And he just said, you know, I was starting to get into a little bit of complaining mind. And he just said, you know, I don't mind this economy section. I've got enough leg room and it's not such a long flight and it's not too bad. And all of a sudden my complaining mind just sort of went, poof, you know, that's really true. It's not so bad here. 
And it was, it was just a kind of indicator of how somebody who's in a, an accepting or contented place can just shift our minds. And that accepting or contented viewpoint is in all of us, but sometimes it just needs a little reminder, as this guy reminded me yesterday. So then I just settled in and really enjoyed the flight across. We crossed the Sierra, uh, snowy, looked down into Yosemite as we flew through. The center of the country was quite cloudy, then we kind of burst into the open over the Great Lakes. And coming over Massachusetts, we flew right over the Quabbin Reservoir, which is a big source of uh, drinking water for, I think, the eastern part of the state. And it's due west of here. If you go out at sunset and you look toward the setting sun, you're looking in the direction of, of the Quabbin. It's a big reservoir, and flying above it, you could see that there was still a lot of ice uh, in, on the surface. And there was this kind of bluey-white color. You know, it was filling it up with ice. And then all around the outside, near the land, was darker brown, and you could see that the ice was starting to melt. And then across the rest of Massachusetts, little ponds and lakes, you could see kind of the same thing. And in fact, if you look at our little ponds around here, you'll also see that combination of ice and melt. And I started to realize that this is really the first sign of spring coming to Massachusetts. And so it's just a great pleasure to be here with springtime just sort of starting to unfold in this climate. It reminded me that this metaphor of the frozen part and the melted part is an old metaphor for our minds. You know, there are sort of places in our minds that are stuck and frozen up, uh, solidified or congealed, where it doesn't flow so easily. And then there are other parts, you know, and that, that expands over the course of the springtime where the ice has receded. And then the currents in, in the lake or the ponds flow quite naturally and the water can come in at one end and flow out at the other end of a lake. And that spring is really the period where that ice gets converted into flowing water, where the stuck places open up and it returns to, to its natural state, you might say, of change or flow. It struck me that that's actually a very good metaphor for the work that we do on retreat that we sort of encounter both the flowing parts of ourselves, and you, you'll experience, I think, uh, great periods of uh, peace and, I hope, contentment during this time. Then we also experience these pockets where the mind just gets stuck. We go into some area of our being that is contracted, tight, frozen, congealed, where we don't flow so easily. We can get stuck in a number of different ways in our lives, our busy, kind of complicated lives that are always a mix of pleasant things happening to us and difficult things happening. So sometimes we start to notice that we get... uh, stuck in some habitual states of mind or some habitual ways of feeling. We may notice that very often in our life there's a feeling of uh, dissatisfaction or maybe loneliness or maybe worry 
or anxiety or maybe some kind of longing that just seems to be very, very present for us, a very frequent companion. Sometimes we get frozen in the way we think about ourselves. We hold a certain image of ourselves. You know, maybe we're a happy person. Maybe we think of ourselves as an unhappy person. Either way, it's sort of a frozenness that doesn't let us really flow with the changing conditions of life. I've talked to some people about the teachings in in this tradition, the meditation will be sharing with you comes out of the Buddhist tradition, where there's a lot of emphasis on looking at the qualities of happiness and unhappiness in our lives. And I'll mention that, you know, the Buddha talked a lot about this feature of unhappiness as a common experience that all people share. And the person will say, I'm not unhappy. I'll say, well, aren't there any things in your life that are difficult? Oh, no, not really. I'm, I'm really a happy person. And I usually don't go much further unless I'm in a teaching role with, with them because it tends to be a difficult conversation from there. But people who have the notion that they are happy people tend to gloss over or deny or turn away from the difficult times in life. But then if we have the idea that we're not a happy person, then we miss a lot of moments in life where there may actually be quite a bit of peace contentment, or joy in our lives. And in a way, I think that one of the ways we get frozen, one of the ways the mind gets stuck is we, we just see what we expect to see. There was this funny experiment, you may have heard of it, conducted by John Kabat-Zinn. John was the person who founded the institute in uh, Worcester at UMass Hospital in Worcester called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, is an application of meditation principles in a, in a non-sectarian way that has really helped a lot of people uh, deal especially with physical pain. So John, uh, as part of the training, does this experiment where he invites people to look at a video of a basketball game. And he says, pay really close attention to what's going on on the court. And so people sit down in front of the, the video and they're really noticing you know, five players on each side and the ball getting passed back and forth very quickly and they're following it in a lot of detail and kind of engaged. And then at the end of the video, he'll ask them, did you notice anything unusual? And about half the people will say yes and half the people will say no. And when he asks the people, what did you see that was unusual? The people who said yes will report, well, about halfway through the video, Somebody came out on the court dressed in a gorilla suit, stood in the middle of the court and beat their fists against the chest, their chest, and then went off. And the people who didn't notice anything say, what? That couldn't have happened. I was watching the whole video. I never saw any gorilla. And then he'll play the video again and stop it when it gets to the gorilla and people will realize there was a gorilla on the court that I didn't even see. Our minds work like that too. If we aren't expecting to see something, it's easy to overlook it. So for instance, as the thaw starts to come in, in our hearts and minds, the areas that are melting, we may not notice them unless we're 
thinking to look, thinking to see that those are there. Sometimes our mind gets kind of frozen in a a stance toward life. Over many, many experiences, many incidents in our life, may we develop a belief about the world, that the world isn't really capable of satisfying us, that the world is intrinsically frustrating, that it doesn't work very well, that the political systems are broken and it's impossible to find happiness. And then this stance that we've kind of adopted reveals itself in our interactions. Maybe our interactions have a built-in sense of uh, irritation or expecting of disappointment. And then we see we've kind of gotten frozen in an attitude, a belief, a view about the world. So often as we begin to experience Uh, our lives with some care and attention, we find these stuck places that are generated out of old habits of mind that are basically ties to the past and that keep us from being really fresh and alive in each new moment. As a way to contrast our sort of stuck state, I like to think about the state of children. If you hang out with a child for a while, you can see that Children move through so many different moods and emotions so easily. Their minds just flow from happiness and friendship and excitement right into frustration and irritation and pain and sobbing. And the child is sort of like transparent to that. All of that just moves in and moves right through. The whole range is there for the child to feel. So children have this way of kind of going with the flow. I got an email uh, this morning from a friend who said that uh, some trip that they'd been planning for a while, they'd recently decided not to to do. They said, oh, I've got the feeling that circumstances were changing and I'm kind of going with the flow of the new situation. I'm not going to take that trip. It was a few months abroad and checking out some monasteries in England. So I'm not going to take that trip. I think that my time for now will be spent in uh, lay life here. Life is always changing sort of under our feet. And the question always is, can we go with its flow? Can we open ourselves up to the new way that life is presenting itself in this moment? Or is one of these stuck attitudes sort of blocking our ability to be with it the way it changes. Sometimes after a beautiful day like today, and maybe it will continue, I don't know, I haven't looked at a weather report, but sometimes then when the rain comes back, because it will come back, and probably while we're all still here, there can be a resistance to it. Oh, it shouldn't be raining. You know, the sunshine really should continue. Just like on our cushion when we've had some peace for a while, And then some movement of mind comes back and stormy conditions, we think that shouldn't be happening. But one Thai teacher put it this way, do you think the clouds are wrong? Do you think that the storms are wrong when they come? 
Or can we have a mind that's really fluid enough to move from one to the other and not really resist, not be stuck in wanting it one way or another? In Zen, they have a saying that a wooden Buddha can't go through fire and an iron Buddha can't cross water. So, is there within us the Buddha that can go through both fire and water? That can be wood when it needs to be wood and can be fire or can be iron when it needs to be iron? We have that capability. One of the things that people most often report after an extended period of meditation is a greater feeling in their life of spaciousness. Someone finished a retreat and was scheduled to visit right afterwards with her family. And she had a a somewhat challenging relationship with her mother from long, long time. And she reported back after uh, being at home for uh, some time, for the better part of a week, my relationship with my mother was much easier this time. She did the same things that she's done before in our relationship, but this time it just didn't bother me so much. I had so much more space around my relationship with her. And then her mother could feel that too and and softened a little bit in her relationship. So one of the great things about meditation is that we start to find more space in life, more space in our mind, more space in our heart, more space of ease and relaxation. In a way, this finding of space has a a deep meaning in these teachings because our basic situation really is very spacious. You know, when you think about it, we have all this physical space. There are things arising at our sense doors, but they're all surrounded by a deep silence if we start to listen. And as we move into the retreat and move into that habit of silence, that way of being of silence, we start to kind of let that spaciousness hold everything that's happening in us. So that spaciousness has a way of allowing all the different changes to come through and move through us, to flow in our experience. And it's really that quality of space, touching the frozen parts, that does the work of melting or unsticking of them. Now, this space is not just a physical space. It's really the space of paying attention. We could say the space of awareness. It's really the meeting of awareness with the places that have gotten stuck that really start to open them up. When I was first meditating, the place where I was stuck that came a lot in my meditation practice was an experience of being afraid. And I would experience it on the cushion. I'd sometimes experience it off the cushion. 
One time I was doing a meditation retreat in England, and it's in the summertime, very beautiful, soft summer evening. The light was kind of golden. The garden I was in was very lovely with flowers, a flowering tree, a lot of birds chirping. I was doing standing meditation out there, and I sort of noticed, oh, there's fear in the mind. I felt into it. Yeah, there's definitely fear in the mind. I was starting to relate to it, feel it in my body, feel it in the mind. Then I opened my eyes and I just looked out on the garden. And the green grass and the soft light, the flowering tree, the birds. And I thought, wow, pretty scary world, isn't it? And just having the ability to be aware of the fear and be aware of the space in the garden, the beauty in the garden, the meeting of those two just started to calm that fear, started to soothe it and release it. So in our meditation practice, when we come upon these places that seem kind of stuck or frozen, an old emotional pattern, an old way of looking at things, we want to let awareness start to relate to it. So our first inclination may be, Oh, move away quickly. I didn't come to England to be afraid. But in fact, that's what's true in this moment. So rather than trying to move away from the stuck place, we need to move into it. Because the moving away is what keeps it stuck. The moving into with this awareness is where it can open up and start to melt. So as we pay attention to these places, we find that we can learn about them. And this is one of the most exciting discoveries in all of meditation. We can learn about the way our minds and hearts work. And as we start to understand them, these stuck places don't feel like they shut us down. We feel that we have the ability to hold them, know them. When we understand them, we're not controlled by them. It's really this understanding that brings the kind of space that lets us feel a new freedom in relation to them. I wanted to mention this word freedom tonight because it's in the course title. I don't know if you noticed it. Some people just sign up for a retreat based on the dates that are available and don't care what the course is about or the teachers or anything. But this course happens to be titled Freedom Here and Now. And we called it this because uh, we enjoy talking about this topic and three of us in our conversations noticed that we like talking about it more and more lately. So we thought we'll call it Freedom Here and Now and maybe that will appeal to more people than just insight meditation, which we'll also be teaching this retreat. But we kind of wanted to put a special emphasis on the quality of freedom. In fact, the numbers for the retreat went down this year. So... Next year, I think we'll call it bondage or (laughs) something like that. The other curious thing we noticed in the registration numbers for this retreat is that usually at our retreats, there are more women than men. And at this retreat, there are more men than women. So maybe something about the language had something to do with that too. I don't know. I'm curious. This is the first time we tried it. We probably won't try it again. So we want to talk about during the week about how freedom grows. And one of the main places freedom grows is that we open up to these difficult areas in the mind or in the body 
we give them an, a degree of attention that we often haven't before. We become interested. We want to learn about them. And through learning about them, they open up. Then there's one more really important ingredient in this mixture. There's awareness, there's interest, interest there's understanding. And the final ingredient that's really, really important is a quality of friendliness. When we can bring a friendliness into our looking, not a cold, scientific, detached observation like we've got a microscope and we're going to really pin this insect to the white paper, but we really have a warm, living connection with it because all these are part of life. They're part of our human life. Then that that friendliness starts to make itself felt in our relationship to them. You know how if you're consistently friendly to somebody, they can't hold a grudge against you. They can't wish you badly. They want you to be well. They want you to do well. When we're consistently friendly to these stuck places in our hearts and minds, they also get friendly back. They kind of want us to do well. And they're not felt as enemies or obstructions any longer. Sometimes if we encounter these difficult places, it may feel like an obstacle. I came here to get peaceful. I came here to get happy. I didn't come here to feel anxious or worried. But actually, these seeming obstacles are more like opportunities. We have a certain amount, each of us has a certain amount of space in our hearts and minds today. A certain balance that lets us live with our uh, personalities, live with our partners or friends or family, live with our work. But all of us can find greater space in all those relationships. Greater space, greater love, greater compassion, greater wisdom. The place we find it from is this opening with friendliness to the places that are stuck in us. One of the hidden secrets of meditation is there's not much more we need to do to find that space than to be willing to learn from what's difficult. Just paying attention with that friendly interest in what's difficult is what unfolds it all for us melts those spaces, turns them into flowing water, turns them into love and compassion and contentment and peace. So when we think of it in this way, you might think that we came here just to get to the peace, but in fact the way to that peace often is through what looks like an obstacle. These are the very places where the growth happens, where the mind can expand, where the love can unfold more. So the practice kind of becomes this alternation of feeling space and then perhaps encountering something that's not so spacious, that's stuck, and then finding space there, letting this space unfold us. And as the space unfolds us, there's a feeling in our lives of greater and greater freedom. Until, it said, there are no more obstacles, no more apparent obstacles, but the mind can open effortlessly into every experience that comes. That degree of freedom is possible. The doorway to it is being willing just to feel in our bodies, 
in our minds, in our hearts, these areas where it feels sticky. So as the instructions go on in the retreat, we'll spend some time kind of collecting the mind. We'll begin with an attention to simple bodily experience like breathing, expand it to more of the bodily experience, then start to relate directly with these states of mind and the capacity of thought which often generates them. As we bring more understanding into each of these areas, the whole of our momentary experience starts to open up and be included in the meditation. Although in the beginning we'll focus on the body, in the end that's to collect our attention so we can understand how we're relating to all of our experience, where the stuck places are, and whether we can bring this soft and interested attention to those. Looking at that balance of mind that lets us just be with what is in this flowing and open kind of way. So a few tools of the retreat to support this investigation, this exploration. We'll have instructions every morning at the sitting after breakfast uh, that will just guide and extend the ways that we'll pay attention. And so I would encourage everybody, please, to come to that sitting. At the end of that sitting, we'll have some time for question and answer. So if there's anything in the instructions that isn't clear or part of your experience you'd like to ask about, there will be time for that every day. Then uh, the days will be in silence. And you can see from the schedule, it's basically an alternation of sitting meditation and walking meditation. In both, we want to bring the same quality of interested, alert, caring attention just through different postures. Then as the retreat goes on, we'll expand that to all the other activities in the day. You will be meeting with us in uh, interviews so that we can talk more personally with you about your experience here. Uh, Some may be in groups, but everyone will have at least a couple of uh, one-to-one meetings during the week with, uh, with one of us. And then every evening there will be a talk uh, similar to the one tonight on different aspects of the meditation practice and the kinds of understandings that go with it. Sometimes on the schedule that just says talk and uh, some people who are new come in and see, oh, you mean I'm going to get to be able to talk to people then? Unfortunately, no, we continue to monopolize the conversation. So we get to talk more then. So there will be a talk every evening. And then at the last sitting of the day we'll... uh, have a quiet sitting with a little bit of chanting that we'll share together. Sometimes a nice way to round off the day and get ready for bed. So I'm really happy to see in uh, this group some old familiar faces. I'd love to welcome people back to IMS. And for those of you that I haven't met before, also really happy to see new faces and I look forward to getting to know you over our week together. This is a journey for us as much as it is for you. Uh, There's a wonderful sense of community and connection that grows as we share this, this quiet together. And I look forward to going on the journey with you. It's a wonderful experience from our side, you know, as much as it is from yours. So thank you all for uh, coming. It wouldn't be the same without you. And Carol is going to lead us into the next part of the opening.
So how many people here have never uh, done uh, an intensive Vipassana meditation retreat? Great, great, welcome. How many of you have done 35? <laughs> Some of you may have. Of those who haven't done an intensive Vipassana retreat, is there anyone who hasn't been familiar with this form of meditation at all? Which is fine, I'm just wondering. Anyone that's completely new to? Okay, great, great, welcome. Just what to say. Um, so, in terms of what we're doing here together, which Guy explained so well, that we're here really as part of the meditation, the particular um, structure of sitting, walking, bringing our friendly, non judgmental attention to whatever's arising in our mind and body through the days, which is somehow not as easy as it might seem, but is incredibly freeing and revealing. Um, that's, the, that's the meditation in essence. That's what we're doing, and we've set up the conditions here to really support that particular aspect of the path. But uh, as we begin tonight, just want to emphasize that the meditation is a part, as Guy said, it comes from the Buddhist tradition, it's a part of the whole path of opening our hearts and minds to things as they are, to learning to live from a place of understanding and connectedness to things rather than from that of neediness, resistance, and fear. But it's a whole path. It's not just about meditation. And I, I just want, we just want to start by emphasizing that because once we move into the week, what we're doing here is the meditation. But it starts by how we understand ourselves, how we understand life, gives rise to how we think about things, to our motivation, to our intentions, to how we speak and act. And so it's really how we speak, how we act, how we think in our life, how we live our lives, is how we meet each moment expands into how we live our lives. And so in going into the retreat, it's really extremely helpful as we move into the silence and move into this commitment that hopefully you're each making with yourself to really be here for this week in yourself, to really you know, as much as possible, bring this, um, this willingness to meet yourself in a moment. You know, it's only for yourself. No one, I mean, we'll be talking with you, but no one's there every moment checking. Are you paying attention now? Are you meeting yourself with kindness? Are you beating yourself up? Is it, you know, it's just, it's, it's up to each of us. And so uh, as we enter into this really quite a unique space in this crazy world, of, I mean, I know other people who don't do these retreats think this is the crazy space, you know, coming in silence and not talking and sitting and walking like zombies. They think this is really the wacko place. But after you've been to some retreats and had this sense of togetherness, we call it sangha, group togetherness, um, and the sense of the, the non-harming space that we create together, the sense of support that arises through practicing like this in silence, the sense of safety that we know we're not going to be taking things from each other, accosting each other physically or verbally, that there's really this support 
and the space Guy mentioned of silence and silent kindness, friendliness, that allows us, each one of us, to, to feel safe enough to open so deeply into ourselves, to just let whatever's arising, beautiful, scary, boring as hell, that'll be a lot of it, <laughs> to, to come up. That's it's really a beautiful space. And from this space, the rest of the world can seem pretty crazy. I think a lot of, for me, what keeps me going in my practice and what so inspires me in sharing this path with others all our life is that each of us can then bring back into the world what Guy described with that woman going back to her family, to her mother, a sense of uh, a more harmonious, kinder, more connected way to be. And just by manifesting that, you know, it starts to ripple out. And what I started to say was, in terms of beginning the retreat, we, we like to do, it's, it's a bit of a ritual, but it's deeper than, it's really a, a, a turning our attention inward and acknowledging for each one of us the, the motivation that brought you here, the intention, the commitment that brought you here. So that we don't just say, well, this is the next thing I'm doing on my list, nine days at IMS, check it off, breathing in and out, in and out, noting, noting, you know, lifting, moving, place. okay, that's it, on to the next thing. You know, with the same mindset, the same kind of doing, what am I getting mindset. Let's put that down. Let's start by really connecting each of us with, why did I really come here? What's the, the, the deep motivation in my heart? And taking a moment just silently to acknowledge that for ourselves. I I see it as sort of like entering a doorway where I'll just put down my my normal habits of mind. I mean, you don't really put them down, but at least we give the sense that we'll look at them rather than being driven by them. And that we're opening up our way of being, our hearts, our minds, to another possibility. The way we frame that in the, this, um, in the Buddhist tradition is by taking what we call the three refuges. The three refuge in Buddha, in Dharma, and Sangha. I'll say what they are, but I see them all as um, symbols of uh, potential of awakening to a greater peace, freedom, and uh, compassion. In, to ourselves and in the world. So when we take refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha, the symbol of the Buddha there, it's a symbol. Buddha was a human being. He's gone, long gone. But he's a symbol of our human capacity to open our hearts and minds to live from a place of awakened freedom, a place of awakened compassion that we don't just have to go through our lives like robots, and that the Buddha was a human being, we're human beings. It's the potential for each one of us to experience moments and longer and longer moments of freedom here and now. Taking refuge in the Buddha is like reminding ourselves when we come to one of those places of stuckness Guy mentioned, not to just go, oh yeah, this is how it's always been and this is how it's always going to be, it's hopeless. 
take refuge in my capacity to awaken. That's all, just a little shift of intentionality. Refuge in the Dharma, Dharma means the truth, just how things are, the laws of nature. It also means the Buddhist teachings. And again, it's like taking refuge in, trusting in the power of the truth of this moment. For me, taking refuge in the Dhamma is like surrendering into the reality of this moment. That's not a giving up. That's just, it's a giving up of fighting and pretending things are different than they are. It's a way of waking up in the moment. When we stop fighting, oh, just as this is, I can wake up in this moment. I can trust this is how it is in this moment. Taking refuge in the Dhamma. Again, it's a shift from our wanting things different, our fighting, our, oh, it's like this. So we wake up in this moment with full collected presence. That's the difference. And the Sangha is, in the classic sense from the, in the Buddhist tradition, the Sangha would be the community of awakened beings. I heard someone describe it recently as the awakened mind stream. And I think that's like something we all share at different moments. Any one of us could be manifesting the awakened mind stream. And so in the sense of the Sangha, the community of us here practicing together, we take refuge not in our personalities or each other's personalities, please, but we take refuge in the fact that together we're cultivating and manifesting the awakened mind stream. And that's a way that, that, as I said earlier, we support each other. We feel that support from each other when we're practicing. Just in a very mundane level, the fact that we're here as a group will many a time be the main thing that keeps you from running out of the hall when you don't like what happened. Many a sitting I've had over many, many years that if there weren't other people there, I would have been gone. But I kept on sitting and everything changed and it was really, I was so glad. I didn't just get up and leave because I was having an unpleasant moment, you know. We're tired, someone else is doing the walking. Oh yeah, I can do that too. It's a space of silence, the space of support. It's really a beautiful thing that can grow in the silence. So we take, and I'll, we like to do it as a, a call and response chant in the Pali language, which is what the first Buddhist texts were written in, just because we like it. And uh, I'll lead that in a moment. And then the second aspect of beginning the retreat is that we agree, and we'll do this in English, that we agree together to... Um, be here in a way of speech and body action that is non-harming. Again, that's that space of um, safety, giving one another what the Buddha called the gift of fearlessness. And this is, it's not just to make it nice for meditation. The sense of agreeing to live while we're here by these five rules of training. They're not like lifetime vows. But the rules of training, it's a way of pointing us back to the deep motivation that drives our speech and action. They really are rules of training, not externally imposed laws that you just, you know, follow blindly and don't think about. It's really that these are, uh, the point is to, to have us wake up 
to why we're doing and saying what we're doing and saying, and maybe to exercise restraint before we do and say something harmful in order not only not to hurt others, but not to hurt ourselves. It's deeply based in the fact that real happiness and freedom is accessible when we are moved by motivations of kindness, of compassion, of non-harming. If we're lost in vindictiveness, in cruelty, in violence, there's no way we're going to be at peace. And so it's, it's for our own well-being and ease as well as for others. So the five training rules or precepts, they're, they're pretty straightforward. And the first is that we agree uh, to take the training rule not to harm or kill living beings. So it's only March. It's a lot easier than it is here in the middle of May, as you know, and there's black flies and mosquitoes. And then it's something to really look at our minds and hearts. So here, it's still all beings, not just each other. (laughs) But we take not to hurt or harm living beings. The second is not to take what is not freely offered or freely given. So obviously not stealing, but it's also a way of just looking at cultivating a sense of inner contentment. So you go for breakfast and you want scrambled eggs and there's oatmeal. Okay, you're obviously not going to go in and grab eggs and cook yourself up an omelet, hopefully, although there has been times where somebody came down into the kitchen, a staff person at 3 a.m., and there was like a whole yogi egg cooking scene going on. (laughs) That would be taking what is not freely given. But anyway, it's much more about, oh, like I said, okay, I don't get the first-class seat. I'm sitting here in economy. That's fine. I wanted eggs. There's oatmeal. Hey, there's food to eat. You know, I can be grateful for that. The third is in daily life, because these five precepts in Buddhist countries, they're the way people practice in your daily life. So in daily life, the third precept is not to harm oneself or others with one's sexual activity. It's basically straightforward, not getting involved in affairs with someone who's in another relationship or if you're in another relationship or abusive or power dynamics or any of that. On retreat, um, we take the precept to maintain celibacy, not to be involved in any sexual activity. And that's much more about the, going into the fourth precept, which is um, right speech. But here we have noble silence, which is really just to keep our energy with ourself for this time. The fourth is we undertake the precept, the training rule, not to lie, not to use harsh or abusive speech, and not to get involved in divisive speech or just a lot of idle chit-chat. Now, in daily life, just check out how much of our speech is idle chit-chat. It's a lot. So this actually is a huge one. But we make it easier for you here, as Guy said, which is noble silence. (laughs) It's actually a lot easier than trying. But I would like to say, in terms of the lying and the abusive speech, just check out how you talk to yourself. And you could, you know, work on softening the abusive speech there. In terms of the noble silence, of course, in your work meditation, if you need to talk to the cook or the housekeeper, you know, of course. In the, in the group interviews, of course. But all other times, just really staying with ourselves, 
We don't need to talk. And it, it's not, not engaging in trying to call somebody's eye contact, for example. We don't like go around afraid to see somebody, but we're just letting each person have their space. And that's a real gift, as you'll find, that gives each of us our space. And the fifth is we agree not to take drugs or intoxicants that cloud the mind and cause carelessness while we're here. This does not include any medications that you're taking. Please continue to take any medications. We're talking recreational drugs and intoxicants, which, I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer in terms of if we come here to cultivate clarity. But that's the agreement we make. So to begin the retreat really is a way of consciously entering into this space where we're of safety and of really bringing this kind, contemplative attitude of interest, inquiry to our experience. We like to begin by taking the three refuges and the precepts. So the refuges, um, I would do a call and response, and we do them three times. That's just kind of the classical formulation. As I said, I'll do that in Pali. And then after that, we take the precepts, and I'll do that in English. I'll say each precept, and you can just repeat it in English. Um, so first, the first line I'll chant, and we can do together, is kind of a, an homage to the Buddha. That's just very traditional. You always chant that before anything. And then the refuges is a Budang. I'm totally spacing on it. I've only done this seven million times. Budang Sadanangachami. That's I take refuge in that. Go to the Buddha for refuge. Budang Sadanangachami. Damang Sadanangachami. Sangang Sadanangachami. And then we do each of those three times. But I'll do call and response. If you're not comfortable chanting, that's fine. We're not trying to put this on you. You can just sit and listen and internally, you know, just move into the retreat. <clears throat> Namo tasa, Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambudasa, Namo tasa, Bhagavato, Arahato. Sama Sambudasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Budang Sadanangachami Damang Sadananga Chami Sangang Sadananga Chami Dutiampi Budang Sadananga Chami Dutiampi Damang Sadananga Chami 
Dutiampi Sangang Sadananga Chami Dutiampi Budang Sadananga Chami Dutiampi Tamang Sadananga Chami Datiampi Sangang Sadananga Chami And the five precepts, just stage one in English. I undertake the training rule to refrain from harming living beings. I undertake the training rule not to take what is not given. I undertake the training rule to refrain from sexual activity. I undertake the training rule not to use false or harsh speech. I undertake the training rule not to use drugs or intoxicants that cloud the mind. So we could consider that we've entered into this sort of sacred space together for these nine days. Thank you. So, if, yeah, we're just going to do a really short sitting together. If you'd like to just stand or stretch for a moment, that's totally fine. And then we'll just have a short, little short, only an hour or so. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Carol mentioned something very important to the meditation, and that is the sense of safety. Each of us can really relax and have to relax if we are asked to open ourselves to our own observation. Uh, There's no other way to do this uh, without feeling safe. So with taking the precepts and 
settling down with one another and having a general way of ethical conduct between us, we can relax uh, and not feel so defensive. Most of us will be self-observing and not spending as much time other observing. And so there's a way that that gives us a, a freedom to not feel so socially conscious or self-conscious. And that too can help us relax. It's just one of the reasons that the noble silence is so important during the retreat, that we're not trying to uh, uh, interact in the same way we do socially. We're just trying to be with ourselves in the company of others and to bring a sense of, of um, quiet observation to ourselves uh, throughout the day. <clears throat> so the meditation can really be summed up in three words, and then we will spend the rest of the week sort of elaborating on those three words. So the, the, the words of the meditation that when you, um, you get confused or troubled, when you feel perhaps uh, a little um, uh, at odds about what to do, remember these three words and just apply them and you'll be right on course. It's self-correcting. And so these three words are relax, observe, and allow. So the meditation really isn't asking much from us, is it? It's not about performance. Uh, It's not about uh, doing something uh, that is tight or tense, that requires a great deal of strenuous activity. It's really just the opposite. It's about unloading. It's about releasing. It's about just seeing. And the word relax is at the heart of the meditation practice. So right now, I would ask each of us to take a posture that would allow the maximum alertness and yet at the same time bring forth that intoned sense of relaxation. The back should be straight. If you're on a chair, I would suggest moving your back away from the back of the chair so that you're swinging uh, free of that. Your hands can be in your lap or folded in any comfortable way that you like. Your legs, if you're in a chair, should be parallel to one another. Just take a sigh. Allow yourself to really feel physically here. It's one thing for your body to be here. It's another for your mind to move and allow also for for you to mentally be here. So first acknowledging that the body is here begins to align the mind with the body so that the crosshairs of the meditation, the mind aligned with the body, that place where it crosses the mind with the body is really what we're looking for. 
softening the mind. It's not a pressured task, so there's no need to feel ambitious or goal-oriented. So just softening the mind, releasing the tensions of the day so that we're not carrying a conversation that we had earlier into this moment, nor are we trying to plan what we're going to do after this evening. It's really about living that crosshair at that point where those where the mind and body meet. Observe. We will notice when we're not looking ahead of ourselves or regretting or reminiscing about something that has occurred. There's a quiet and expansive observation that begins to notice because we are basing our attention in the body physical sensations. It notices areas of tension and therefore can be released and relaxed. The neck, the shoulders, the eyes, the jaw, and the belly. Just notice those areas. Invite your mind into the body. Suddenly we become very still. That sense of knowing what's arising, knowing the breath is occurring. That is the definition of meditation. So if we're thinking and not being present with that knowing of what's arising, then we are quite likely lost in thought. And when that happens, relax. Don't try to run right back to the breath. Let the breath find you from that sense of relaxed response, just relaxing, and you'll find that the breath comes back to you. Rather, you don't have to go searching for it. Especially important are in those moments of when we have lost our attention and then regain our footing is to dissipate any attitude that might have accompanied that loss of attention. Not to badger ourself or judge ourself. That's not what we're looking for. Rather just release all of the verbal attitude and just come back to that sense of relaxation, allowing the breath to find us. Where we feel the breath, most often we can feel it in the belly area or the chest, sometimes at the nose tip, wherever we feel it predominantly, sometimes the whole sense of the body in breath and feeling the breath as it expands our chest and our abdominal area. 
knowing that breathing is occurring. And allowing just being present without demands, without judgment. So we will sit for just a few minutes Staying present. Knowing the breath is arising.
You can feel the energy just quieting down now as we begin to move into silence together. <clears throat> also, meditation isn't, of course, just about sitting on our pillows and following our breath, but that sense of being collected and knowing what the body is doing, staying in the body throughout the course of the day, knowing when the shower is being taken, the motions, the feelings of the hands and the body uh, as they do the tasks of the day, just staying very much embodied uh, and knowing that you're there, not letting the mind rush off and move off into a different direction, keeping that crosshairs, keeping that X and Y axis at the cross point, the mind in the body. Tomorrow uh, there will be an, a, a 515 bell. Uh, for those of you who have traveled, <clears throat> you have a choice this early morning whether to stay in bed because you're tired and need some additional sleep. But I will be up in here at uh, 545 for that first sitting. For those of you who would like to join, please come. And for those of you who need additional rest, you're welcome to stay. Uh, the breakfast will be at 6.30. And again, uh, if you want to miss that meal, you're welcome. But uh, I would uh, suggest getting up sometime in that morning not to miss that first sitting after breakfast, uh, which will be the more, uh, time when we will offer the instruction and uh, some additional advice and in the course of the meditation. Okay, so have a good evening. Uh, the bell is less than eight hours away, so <laughs> we might want to go right to bed. Uh, we are in noble silence now, so to leave the meditation hall quietly, and also just uh, collectively uh, begin to slow down. We're not having to move at the speed of our normal pace. We have nothing to do here but follow the bells and get to the places in plenty of time. So I look forward to seeing you tomorrow and have a good night's sleep. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.